I said, welcome your pastor as he comes. morning guys I'm gonna be okay I'm gonna be honest with you I'm not okay last night I sat with a young man watching his dad breathe with the help of a machine And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, how is this right? How is it right that a 19-year-old man has to sit there and watch his dad go through all this? How is it right that he has to make a decision? That honestly is guys, it's life or death. And then I'm reminded that this wasn't God's plan. When God created the heavens and the earth, he created them perfect. He created them sinless. He created them to proclaim his glory. Man had a choice. Man chose his own way. And in choosing his own way, sin, death, disease, corruption, decay, all entered the world with it. And at the same time, with my heart broken for what Drake's going through, I can't help but hang on to the hope that we have that this world is not the end. This is not our permanent residence. This is a temporary assignment. And one day, we will be freed from all this pain. One day, we will be freed from all of this disease, all this corruption. And until then, we wrestle. We wrestle hard. And it's not an easy wrestling, guys. This morning, it's going to be nothing but wrestling for me. I'm just going to be honest with you. We've been talking about rethinking religion. And I am going to do my best to close this out on this this morning. But before we get started, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach with it. Before we get started this morning, I'm asking us. <clears throat> as Drake's brothers and sisters to go before our Heavenly Father on his behalf. And I'm asking you, 
I'm asking you, one, pay for a miracle. But secondly, I'm also asking for you to pray for comfort. God has a will. We don't know what it is. But I do know this. He knows the pain Drake's feeling. He knows the pain that he's going through. Drake and Dawson, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting Dawson in this as well. But if you will, I want you to stand with me this morning. I want us to stand boldly before the throne of God and intercede on behalf of our brother this morning. Pray with me. Father, this morning we come, we come boldly. We come boldly before you, Lord, because there is nowhere else to go. You are our king. You are our savior. You are our Lord. You are our alpha. You are our omega. You are our beginning and our end. And Father, this morning we come before you on behalf of one of our brothers. I believe what Paul wrote in Corinthians, Lord. I believe it comes directly from you. That when one of us is hurting, we're all hurting. And God, I'm going to be honest with you, my heart's breaking. My heart's breaking for what this young man is having to go through right now. Father, maybe it is selfish. But I do pray. I pray for a miracle. I pray, Lord, that you would do something that is so amazing that everyone in the world would not be able to deny that it comes straight from you. But Father, if that is not your will, if that is not what you have in place, I pray for strength. I pray for strength for Dawson and for Drake. I pray for wisdom. Father, you hurt his heart last night. He just wants direction on what to do. So this morning, we come before you asking for direction for him. We also come before you, Lord, asking for comfort. I know many people, in the sound of my voice this morning, have, have, have been through this situation. They've seen, they've had to see this hardship that they're going through. And Father, I pray that you would stir in their heart a desire to seek these young men out. And to share with them, Lord, that comfort that you gave them. Because you told us again in Corinthians that all things that happen to us aren't by chance. And that you allow us to go through certain times and bring us comfort in those times so that we can bring comfort to our brothers and sisters when they are going through similar situations. Father, we pray. That you're God in this situation. We know you are. But we pray that Dawson and Drake, that their eyes will continually to be fixed on you. As I sit there and I listen to Drake sing, Lord, it wasn't a beautiful sound to me, but I know it was a beautiful sound to you last night. My heart did, it leapt with joy. Father, don't let that faith 
burn out. Don't let it grow weak. Kindle that fire. Help us to surround him, Lord, to daily encourage him to be the man of God that you're calling him to be. This morning, Lord, as we dig into this word, I just pray. (laughs) Father, I pray that you would speak to these people. I pray that some sense will probably come out of what may be a bunch of rabbling today. Father, this morning we desire your spirit to speak to the heart of every man, woman, and child that is in the sound of my voice. We pray that you would give us eyes to see. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. And we pray that you would give us a heart to understand what this word has for us this morning. Father, I want to thank you for what you have done in me through this word. But I also want to thank you for the desire in my heart to meditate on this one day and night for over four weeks now. Now, Father, just help us to apply it to our life. We are here for a purpose, God. That purpose is to worship and glorify you. So this morning, Lord, let everything that's been done here today be pleasing to you. Let everything that's done here today bring honor and glory to you. Let everything that is done here today, Lord, shine a light on your Son, Jesus Christ. It's because of him that we're here, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Two weeks ago, God bless you, Two weeks ago, me and Jennifer uh, took the boys over to uh, one of the pumpkin patches. I know many of you saw my post over the last week on Facebook. I did it on purpose because I'm getting off of Facebook and social media for a while, and I wanted y'all to be sick of me and not miss me on there. So I went pumpkin spice crazy. But we went to go pick out pumpkins the other day, and it was, it was kind of weird. Um, it's not like what I remember when I was a kid. When I was a kid, there was one type of pumpkin. You know what I mean? It was the orange pumpkin, kind of tall, some kind of short. It was a pumpkin that you used just for carving, and that was it. You tried to make a pie with it. It was horrible. It was nasty. We go to the pumpkin patch nowadays. You've got pumpkins of every size, every color, probably every denomination. I'm not really sure. You got pumpkins with warts. You got pumpkins with scars. You got pumpkins with stripes. You've got small pumpkins, big pumpkins, fat pumpkins, tall pumpkins, long pumpkins. You've got all types of pumpkins. And it makes the choice very, very difficult. So by the time we were done, we left with um, seven, no, no, it wasn't seven pumpkins. No, it was nine pumpkins. Because, God help, we leave one of those poor little pumpkins out. It's amazing how things have changed. And it's amazing how we judge things by the way they look. Most of those pumpkins that were in that field, I'll be honest with you, I would have left them in that field. They were ugly. I seen them as unuseful. I know which ones you make the pies with, and that's the only ones I'm interested in. The rest of them, while they were a pumpkin, no doubt about that, a lot of their features 
were not the same as what we would anticipate. As we've been digging into this scripture, we've been talking about religion. Religion's a tough thing. Religion is something that we do. It is. It's something that we do to make ourselves in right standing with God. What's funny about that statement is, is that we even think that we can ourselves inside of us make ourselves right with God. And I know I did this completely in reverse. We started in verses, um, started in verses 22, or actually, yeah, in 22, then we jumped to 25, then we went back to the broad gate and the small gate, and now we're here before us with the false prophets, and that's what we're going to be digging into a little bit today. We're not going to read the scripture all the way through because I want to break it down, and I want us to really look at what's being talked about here. Because our eyes fool us. Our eyes deceive us. Naturally, we go off of what we see. But the warning that is given here in Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, is a warning to watch our eyes. And I want you to look what he says here. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravish, ravenous wolves. This is a warning that we have heard many times. It wasn't too long ago we talked about the false prophets when I went through portions of Second Peter. And they are mentioned in almost every book of the New Testament. These false prophets... These false Christ, these false witnesses are seen in almost every book that we have in the New Testament. Here's what's crazy. These false prophets, they look the part. With our eyes, we can't see any difference. The way they dress, the way they present themselves, to our eyes, it all looks good. We think that these people, these are truly prophets when we started this series we were a couple of verses ahead of this and when we see these people go before Jesus on the day of the Lord we see these people making some professions to Christ and we're going to come back to this at the end but the professions they make to Christ are did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many miraculous things in your name? And honestly, when it comes to outward works, there are certain things that we can do that would make us think that our lives are good. We got up on Sunday, we got dressed. We had zero fights in our house this morning. Somebody needs to write that down because that never happens. We got ready. We were early. We got to church. We looked good. I forgot to tuck in my shirt. Sorry about that, but you'll get over it. We had everything in our lives in sync. And a lot of times when it comes to looking the part of the Christian, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for things to be in sync. We're looking for our lives to look like the part. But even with that, these false prophets that we're talking about, 
their lives looked the part. They got up. They worshiped together. They memorized the Torah. They kept the Sabbath holy. They did things in the name of the Lord. And they thought they were good. This tells me we can't always trust our eyes. Our eyes fool us. Our eyes deceive us. Our eyes can play tricks. Our eyes can grow weak. Our eyes can be easily deceived. Not only do we have to watch our eyes, we also have to watch something else. Because they also said that they prophesied. They prophesied in his name. What this tells me is we also have to watch our ears. The words sound good. These words are probably even well spoken. These speakers, these false prophets, they probably articulate themselves very well. They probably bring in proper illustrations. They probably have proper backdrops. They're able to tie things in together. But at the same time, their words are empty. Their words are void. And their words are deceiving. We can't always trust our eyes to see. We can't always trust the works that we see. We can't always trust our ears. So this brought a question to me. This brought a real hard question to me. So how do we know? How do we know? How do we know if a prophet is a true prophet or a false prophet? Because let's just be real for a minute. There are people who look at pastors all the time. Most people would say a pastor is a true prophet. But most of you and myself, since we have the access to the world now through the internet, we're able to listen to many pastors, many prophets. And I'm going to be honest with you. Not all of them are preaching the same gospel. Not all of them are preaching the truth of what God's word says. Not all of them are bringing attention to God. So how is it that we can tell if a prophet is a true prophet or if they're a false prophet? Well, look again at what Jesus said there. Because at first he said, they appear to be sheep. But look what he says next. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Inwardly. They are ravenous wolves. Not on the exterior. On the exterior, they look good. On the exterior, they sound good. On the exterior, I promise you, they preach better than I do. On the exterior, they do more things than I do. On the exterior, their works look great. But on the interior, something else has taken place. I'm going to be honest with you, as a pastor, this is an extremely hard thing for me. Because we're called, in a way, to be fruit inspectors. 
And honestly, you've done the same thing. You've got an orange at some time. The outside of that orange, it looked beautiful. It looked glistening. You opened it up, tore it apart in segments, got all that nasty white stuff off of it, but you tore it up in segments, and it come apart just absolutely perfect. And you just think to yourself, this is going to be the perfect orange. And you stick it in your mouth and you almost throw up. You ever done that? It's bitter. It's nasty. Might be because you just brushed your teeth a few minutes ago. And that is a horrible situation. But at the same time, it's not just happened with oranges. Been into an apple one time at lunch. Stepped there, chewed it up, swallowed it, didn't think nothing of it. Pulled the apple up, looked at it. Half a worm was crawling out of that animal. On the outside, it looked good. I didn't even see the hole. But when you bit inside, a little bit of extra protein never hurt nobody. <laughs> so how do we tell? How do we tell if we really can't judge on external things? Any guesses? Anybody want to guess? How do we tell? Because it's hard. Because we can't look at what's going on on the outside. We have to look at what's going on on the inside. And what's going on in the inside is something that isn't always as clear as it needs to be. It's intent. It's motives. It's what drives that individual. And as a pastor, I'm going to be honest with you, as a pastor, this is extremely difficult. I have many people tell me a lot of times that they want to come and help and do things. And sometimes there's red flags that go up. You know what I mean? I'm going to be honest with you. I had red flags go up last week, and God kind of knocked every one of them down, and I'll share with that with you all in a couple of weeks. But these red flags, they draw attention to us. Sometimes these red flags are by what we see. Sometimes these red flags are by what's inside the person. But in searching out the scriptures to find an answer for this, I turned to the only place a pastor could really turn. I turned to the pastoral epistles. I turned to 1 Timothy. And what was kind of amazing when I turned to 1 Timothy is when I turned there, I didn't have to look very far. If you will, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Timothy. It'll be on the board, but I want you to go ahead and turn with me, and I want you to listen to what Paul is instructing young Timothy as he goes to Ephesus, or as he's left behind in Ephesus, to lead this church. In verse 3, he says, As I urged you upon departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines or pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which gives rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, in this scripture, he gives three quick things, and we're going to go through these real quick. He tells Timothy to watch for three things. The first thing that he tells Timothy to watch for is strange doctrine. 
Now, when we talk about strange doctrine, automatically we think about any doctrine that goes against the gospel, right? That's a strange doctrine. The strange doctrine that Timothy is being instructed on here is even a little bit more deeper than that. Because there were men, there were women, and there were other individuals at this time who were claiming that there was no resurrection. Did y'all hear me on that? There was no resurrection. That ought to cause us to gasp. Because if there is no resurrection, then there is no forgiveness for sin. If there is no resurrection, then there is no hope of another day. If there is no resurrection, then Christ's sacrifice on the cross was in vain. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection is important. The resurrection is what brings us victory over death. The resurrection is what brings us victory over our sin. The resurrection is what brings us hope that this is not the end. The resurrection is what we look forward to. Not just Christ's resurrection, because there is another resurrection that's going to take place. Our resurrection. And I, like I've said before, will have a glorified body. 160 pounds, built. More hair. I don't know what my glorified body is going to look like, guys. Nobody does. But other strange... <laughs> easy. But other strange doctrines that were also taught in this time are also doctrines that are taught today. It's kind of like what we've been talking about. Making yourself right with God. Doing what you need to to please God. Doing what you need to to make up for your sin. Been married now for 14 years. You a lucky girl. In that 14 years, you know what I've realized? I don't always please my wife. How about you men? Do y'all always please your wife? Nope. In that 14 years, I've realized there's some things that I've done in my life that I can't make up for to her. In my life, there's some things I've realized that I can never do good enough for her according to what I want done, not what she wants done, okay? She ain't that way. But I want to ask you a question. If I can't do everything to please my wife, if I can't do everything to make right with her, if I can't do everything to be the person that I need to be to her, what makes me think that I can do that to a holy, righteous God who is perfect? What makes me think that I can do that to a God who is far superior than I ever thought, than I ever could be? These are strange doctrines. The strange thought that a fallible man can please an eternal, perfect God is absolutely ridiculous. It can't be done. And this strange doctrine comes about from one thing and one thing alone. We think we're good. We think we're good. 
The older I get, the realize the worse I am. I can't keep up with my boys anymore. We were playing soccer the other day. They can outrun me. They can outkick me. They can outlast me. But I still know where they sleep. So I will catch them one day. Not only were the doctrines self-centered, it also caused them to make the Scripture self-centered. Here's where a lot of the danger comes in with this, guys. We've all been to a Bible study. We've all read Scripture. And then somebody has posed a question before us that seems small, it seems innocent, and it seems like a question that all of us can answer. And that question is, what do you think that Scripture means to you? Innocent question, isn't it? How many of y'all been in a Bible study where it's been asked? How many of you have even asked it? I have. And here's the problem with that. My eyes deceive me. My ears deceive me. My body deceives me. My mind deceives me. My opinions deceive me. My thoughts deceive me. My rationale sometimes deceives me. And guess what, guys? There's times that I can look at the Scripture, I can read it, and I can get it wrong. And what's being said here, I've already got a boy snoring over here. How about that? That will bless your heart. What's being said here during this time is that the Bible or God's Word or the Scripture, because it wasn't canonized, it wasn't put together at this time, but the Scripture is narrow. It's narrow-minded. It's not modernized. It doesn't appeal to our culture. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you something. This Word, it is narrow. And I'm going to tell you why it's narrow. It's narrow because the gate is narrow. It's not wide. It's not bright. And sometimes our thoughts and our opinions on what this says is wrong. That's why context is so important, guys. If you're not reading it in what context it's being taken from, it will lead you astray. These strange doctrines point to man and always point away from God. He says then, beware of myths. You know what myths are designed to do? Myths are designed to do one thing. Myths are designed to get your mind going. Myths are designed to get you to think. And myths are designed to always pull you away from the truth. When I was a kid, my uncles, your uncles used to tell you all kinds of tall tales and all kinds of stories. I can remember we would go around to campfire sometimes. We'd have camp family, um, family events, and there'd be a little storytelling time. And honestly, I think it was just a contest between my uncles to who could tell the biggest tale. And there was some pretty good tales out there. My favorite one was about catching a fish this big. You see what I'm doing over here, right? But at the same time, these myths, they captivated me. They intrigued me. They lured me. And they pulled my attention away from what was going on. Went camping with one of my uncles one time. I was a little kid. I was scared to death of the dark. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm still kind of scared of the dark. I really am. You can't see what's going on. There could be something there. 
You can step on a toe, you can step on a Lego, you can step on a Beyblade. You ain't tried that one? Give me a call. I'll let you come over to the house. My Uncle Larry, we went outside, sat by the fire. I wanted to go home. So he starts telling me stories. Larry could tell some good, tall stories. He eased my mind. We get back in the tent. We're right next to a creek. And all of a sudden I hear, boosh, boosh, boosh. Now it wasn't that loud, but to me it sounded that loud. Come to find out we had a bear come in. Dude, I'm out. Time to go. Time to go. It didn't matter what myth. It didn't matter what tale he told me. It wasn't going to draw me back in. But myths and tales are done nothing, do nothing but draw us in. They captivate us. They lure us. Myths and tales have a different name by today's standard. We call them conspiracies. We call them theories. And I'm just going to be honest with you. There's a lot of them going on out there. There's a lot of speculation about what's going on in our world. There's a lot of speculation about what's going on in our government. There's a lot of speculation about a lot of things. But I'm going to hold true to the word of God on this one. Ignore it. Did you hear me? Ignore it. This is why I have taken a challenge on myself, and I've called many of you to a challenge too. Get away from social media for a month. Get away from the news for a month. Because all they're doing is trying to lure you away from what is truly important. The truth. The truth. And guys, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm sitting here crying my eyes out a few minutes ago. But I'm really wrestling with this at the same time. Crying my eyes out about a friend of mine, brother of mine, Who's on a ventilator? He's on a ventilator because of pneumonia that was brought on by COVID. Is this a serious issue? Yes, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you that it's a serious issue. But there's a problem when people of faith live in fear. Because you can't have fear and hope at the same time. Now, I'm not saying we just go out and be reckless. I'm not saying we go out and do stupid things. But at the same time, the two can't exist together. Whenever there is fear, there is no hope. Whenever there is hope, there is always no fear. What do conspiracy theories do? They drive in fear. They drive in speculation. They pull our mind away from the truth of what God has for us. And I'm going to be honest with you. These conspiracy theories are nothing more than mental terrorism. Mental terrorism. The United States. Has a. Unwritten rule. They don't negotiate with terrorism. Brothers and sisters of Christ. Why are we negotiating with terrorism? We should not allow mental terrorism to even take place in our minds. These people, and this is a conspiracy, they want to instill fear. They want to stop us. Why? 
Because the gospel is a powerful tool that brings truth. The gospel is the power of salvation unto those who believe. The gospel changes life. The gospel brings hope. The gospel helps us to see that this world is not the end. And brothers and sisters, the gospel tells us that there is nothing in us that we can do to make ourselves right with God. It's all dependent on Jesus Christ. I'm thankful he paid that debt for me. He goes on to say, genealogies. Now, I want to narrow you in here for a minute because, honestly, when I read genealogies, you know what comes to my mind? The book of Numbers. 1 Corinthians. Matthew chapter 1. Luke chapter 2. You know these genealogies that get you confused, that get you lost? Such and such begot such and such. Such and such begot such and such. And it's very confusing. And if you try to read the Bible through in one year, you're either going to stop at Numbers or you're going to stop at First Corinthians or First Chronicles. Always happens. These genealogies they become endless. These genealogies they become mind-boggling. But these are not the genealogies that he's talking about here. The genealogies that are being talked about here are the personal genealogies. Beware of people who think they are good simply because of who they come from. My uncle was a deacon. My great-grandpa, great-great-grandpa was a pastor. He was a circuit rider preacher. My great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa gave the land that we're standing on right now. Does that mean anything? Absolutely not. But there are many people who will use tactics like that to draw people in. Well, he must be good. He come from a good lineage. You ever looked into the lineage of Jesus Christ? I'm going to be honest with you, it ain't a good lineage. One of the first names that you'll see in there is a prostitute. A little on down the road, you'll find another name in there. She was a Moabitess. And they were supposed to be completely separated. Just because who we come from or who an individual come from does not mean that they are a good individual. I know many pastors out there who have stepped all over their daddy's name. Their dads were good pastors. They have taken that legacy and they have completely destroyed it. But on the flip side of this, this genealogy can also be used another way. Sometimes we get captivated. Sometimes we get mesmerized by people who have outstanding testimonies. You know what I mean? Those people who come from nothing and were literally reached down, brought out of a ditch, brought out of a pit, and put in a place to where, honestly, they don't deserve to be. People use these tactics these tactics to draw you in. These tactics to get your attention. These tactics to lead you astray. And all these tactics lead to one thing. It leads to their intent. You know what their intent is? Their intent is to exalt themselves. 
Their intent is for you to look at them. Their intent is for you to listen to their words. Their intent is for you to hang on to everything that they say. Their intent is to draw you away from what the truth really says and get you to follow them. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you something. It's the oldest trick in the book. In Exodus 20, or Ezekiel 28, we read about the king of Tyre. Some of y'all have read about this. And I'm just going to paraphrase it. Ezekiel is talking about how this king was beautiful, was at the top of his game, come from a perfect lineage, did all the right things. But then it kind of shifts. Because it's almost like you're talking about one person and then the story kind of shifts to another one. Because you start hearing words like, you were a high cherubim. Cherubim's on our own earth. That's a heavenly creature. That's an angel. Your beauty was far beyond anything that was ever created. But pride set in your heart, talking to this king, talking to this cherubim, and you exalted your throne above the heavenly throne. Brothers and sisters, the king of Tyre is a reference to Satan himself. Satan was an angelic being. That's why when people tell me my boys are angels, I remind them that Satan was too once. Look how it turned out for him. Satan was a celestial being. Satan was an angel. Satan exalted himself above God and at that point was cast down. But not only did Satan exalt himself, he got others to believe the same lie. Revelation chapter 12 says that Jesus saw this. That Jesus saw a third of the heavenly host fall when Satan was cast down. And Satan's main job while he is here on earth, according to Revelation chapter 12, is to lay the guilt before the brethren day and night. Satan's job is to make you guilty. Satan's job is to deceive you. Satan's job is to do exactly what he did. Cause you to think that you're better than God himself. Let's go full circle for a minute. The first week we talked about the prophets. Or we talked about the individual standing before God. God, did we not do this in your name? God, did we not prophesy in your name? God, did we not cast out demons in your name? God, did we not do many miracles in your name? And what does Satan, or what does Jesus look at him and say? Huh? Over the last couple of weeks, 
God opened my eyes to something that wrecked me. These individuals thought they were good. These individuals were the false prophets. These individuals thought by what they were doing, they were making themselves right with God. But the problem was, they were building their foundation on sand and not on the rock. And this sand slowly but surely washes away. Our bodies are nothing but dust of this earth, kind of like sand. And they will wash away. So what happened to these individuals? Go back to the broad gate. Go back to the narrow gate. They saw the broad gate. They saw all that was going on. They saw all the people. They saw all the attraction. They saw all the thing that drew their attention to that broad gate. And why couldn't they see that narrow gate? Because that narrow gate was not even in the same direction. That narrow gate was 180 degrees behind them. And it was so narrow that it didn't draw much attention. It didn't draw much attention compared to what was going on over here because what was going on over here looked good. What was going on over here looked like someplace I wanted to be. What was going on over here had lots of people and I like being around lots of people. Lots of people make me feel like I'm not alone. But over here, man, that's narrow. That's a hard path rocky path and those people were drawn away by other false prophets and they went towards what they thought looked good they went towards what they thought was good and when that day comes Christ will look at them and say Depart from me. I never knew you. Why does this break my heart? I want to ask you a real question. And I don't want you to raise your hand. I want you to wrestle with this in your head. How many of you think you're good? How many of you think that you've got what it takes? How many of you think that truly just by your abilities, your talents, your gifts, that you can make yourself right with God? How many of you think simply because on the outside everything looks together, but honestly, on the inside, and you know the truth, everything's an absolute wreck. How many of us have been deceived? How many of us have had our attention drawn away from that narrow gate, that narrow way, 
that narrow path and looked at where all the people were. It breaks my heart because there's many who's going to stand before God one day and they're going to think that they're good. And they're going to hear some words that are going to pierce to their core. And I ain't good with that, guys. I'm not good with that. As your pastor, if we're doing things here that are drawing attention away from Christ, I think we better stop doing them. As your pastor, if we're trying to build people up to think that they're good, even to the point to where they need Christ no more, I think we need to change things. If we're doing anything in our structure here, because this isn't the church, you're the church. But if we're doing anything in our structure here that isn't continually pointing to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when I say the gospel of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, I'm talking about the fact that I am a horrible individual, that everything in me is evil, wicked, and depraved. And that in everything that I am, I could not make myself right with God. And God knew that I couldn't make myself right with him. So he did something that was completely unheard of. He sent his son to take the punishment that I am due. Because I never could make myself right with him. So he sent a holy perfect, sinless son to take my punishment. That son, that son was put between for many trials. They never could find him guilty because he was blameless. That son had a cat and nine with tails a whip that is entangled with bone, with stone, with pieces of metal, that as it's drug across his back, it rips flesh away from him. His beard is yanked out. His face is punched. His body is beat. A crown of thorns is drove, not placed, drove. The Bible says they put it on his head with reeds, whipped it down so it would go into his skull. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, they then, then put a cross on his back and made him carry it, some say, upwards of a mile up to a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And when he got that cross up there, they nailed him to it by his hands and his feet. 
He was up there for about six hours. When finally he gave up his ghost. Into your hands, Lord, I commend my spirit. They took a spear and then shoved it in his side. And out from the side poured water and blood. They put him in a tomb that wasn't even his own. Pretty harsh, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. That's the punishment for those who sin. That was supposed to be us. That was supposed to be us hanging on that cross. That was supposed to be us having that crown of thorns drove on our head. That should have been us having our beard yanked out and our faces punched. That should have been us being beaten to the point of being unrecognizable. That should have been us having that cat of nine tails drug across our back. And you say, Scotty, why should that have been us? Because the wages of sin is death. And brothers and sisters, church it in a game. That is the gospel. That is life and death. And that is why we need to rethink our religion. Pray with me. Father, many have been led astray. There's been times in my life that even I have got caught up with what's going on around me and taken my eye off the prize. And Father, as a church, as a faith family, I ask that you would continually draw our eyes back to the cross. It's so easy, Lord, in this world to get caught up with everything that is going on. It's so easy to see all that's attracting people. And then I read Isaiah 53. And I read about the suffering servant. And how there was nothing appealing about him that would draw our attention to him. How he was beat for our iniquity. How on him you laid our punishment. And Father goes on to say that because of what he did, it pleased you to do that. And the only reason it pleased you to do that is because of your great love for us. Father, I'm sorry many times I've got it wrong. I'm sorry many times I've probably drawn people's attention away from you. I know there's times in my life where I've wanted to say, look at me. So forgive me, Father. I don't want people to look at me. 
I don't want people to look at Harmony Grove. I want people to look at Jesus, God. I want people to gaze on the splendor of our King and in awe be broken. Broken because of our sinful lives. Father, help us to hold true to the gospel. Because it's only because of the gospel that we can come to you right now. And this morning, Lord, we come to you. Father, this morning I pray that your spirit does what it can only do. That it draws your children to yourself. Father, draw your children to yourself. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we stand... As we play, I'm going to tell you right now, as they sing this song, you want to worship, you worship. You want to fall down at the altar, you fall down at the altar. You want to kneel down where you are, you do it. But I do want to say this. This morning, if you feel like God's drawing you, if you feel like God's calling you to repentance, and you feel like God is calling you to himself, I'm right here. I'm right here. Ricky's right there. Ernie's right there. Cliff's right there. Tim's right there. Keaton's right there. Go talk to somebody. Talk to somebody about what is going on in you. We don't want to help you. We can't help you get to Christ. We want to pray with you because he came to seek and save that which was lost. And if you feel him drawing you this morning, I want you to know this. He's seeking you. Go to him. Tommy.